0: If you have a Bible, open it up to John chapter 11. That's where we're going to be this morning. John chapter 11. Some of you will recognize the uh, image that I'm about to put on the screen. Some of you recognize this man from the commercials for Dos Equis. I realize this is church, but uh, I'm going to go ahead and share this illustration. Uh, This is a beer commercial and uh, if you recognize this man, you know that he is the most interesting man in the world, all right? And so for uh, the better part of the last decade, Dos Equis has been running these ads with the most interesting man in the world. Some of the taglines for this man are, he cures narcolepsy just by walking into the room, all right? Uh, once he had an awkward moment just to see what it felt like. He, uh, at the end of every commercial, of course, says, I don't always drink beer, but when I do, I drink Dos Equis. Uh, On the very latest version of this commercial, uh, it was the last one, and uh, he boarded a rocket to Mars to go colonize the planet of Mars. And uh, as he walked to the rocket, uh, the narrator, the voiceover narrator said his only regret was he never knew what regret feels like. And then he got in the rocket and he flew away. And that was the end of his campaign. Now, the reality is, of course, that uh, this man is not the most interesting man in the world, right? He is an actor named Jonathan Goldsmith from New York. He's not even Latino, even though he uses that accent in the commercials. Uh, he's a Jewish guy who grew up in New York. He's an actor. He's just pretending. He's as ordinary as you and I. But this morning, we have the opportunity, of course, to examine the life of who is truly the most interesting man in the world. Jesus. For 2,000 years, people have talked about and read about, and debated, and discussed who Jesus is, because He is God in the flesh. Maybe the greatest question that you and I could ask this morning is, first of all, who is Jesus? Is He really who the Scripture says He is? And then secondly, if He is, what is my relationship with Him? Who is Jesus and what is my relationship with him? Jesus is the most important, most interesting, most significant person in history. Uh, The Gospel of John that we're going to look at for the next several weeks is written uh, specifically to answer the question of who is Jesus. At the end of the Gospel of John, uh, John says that I have written these things so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. The whole purpose of John's gospel, he says, is so that you and I will know who he is. And John examines Jesus from a variety of angles. Uh, he looks at Jesus' miracles. He looks at Jesus' teachings. He looks at Jesus' relationship with his father, Jesus' relationship with other people, and from every angle, John makes the case that Jesus is the Christ. That is, he is God's king. He is the son of God. He is fully human and fully divine, the one that God sent because he loves us and wants us to know him. Uh, Over the next seven weeks, we're going to look at one aspect of John's presentation about Jesus, which is what are often referred to as the I am statements of the book of John. Uh, there are actually eight I am statements. We're going to look at seven of them in detail over the course of the next seven weeks. The eighth one comes from John eight fifty eight, where Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. And that sets the tone for us. Whenever we see those words, I am, here's what we need to recognize. That Jesus is using the very words that God used about himself when he spoke from the burning bush to Moses. When Moses said, who should I tell the Israelites when they ask, who sent you? God's voice came back out of the bush and he said, you tell them. I am that I am. Now, of course, the Old Testament is written in Hebrew. The New Testament is written in Greek. But there was a popular Greek translation of the Old Testament. And in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, God uses these Greek words, Ego, "ami," I am that I am. And over and over and over again throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus repeats these words that are on the lips of the Father, I am. Who I am, Jesus claims over and over again to be equal to God. And so John doesn't give us the option to ignore Jesus. John doesn't give us the option to say Jesus was just another guy like Jonathan Goldsmith from New York. John gives us only really two choices, and that is either to believe what Jesus said or to disbelieve what Jesus said. But everybody in history has to come to terms with who Jesus is. Is he who he claimed or is he not? And so this morning we are going to embark on a seven-week series where we will examine the claims of Jesus from the Gospel of John and look at who he claims to be because he claims to be God in the flesh. And of course, on Easter Sunday, we're going to start with what I think is one of the most powerful I am statements in the Gospel of John. I am the resurrection and the life from John chapter 11. Uh, We are going to look at the story of Jesus as he raised his friend Lazarus from the grave and made not only a verbal claim, but a claim with his works to be the one who gives life, who creates life, the only one in whom we can find life. That's going to be the claim of Jesus in the Gospel of John. Very simply this, that Jesus is the only one who can defeat death And provide us with eternal life. So as we start, let me ask you uh, this question. Very simply, you don't have to answer out loud, but just ask yourself this question. What am I afraid of? What am I afraid of? Because on some level, all of us are afraid, I think, of the reality of death, right? Many of the things we fear, we fear terrorism, we fear economic uh, insecurity, we fear sickness, we fear pain, and at its root level, all of us fear the reality of death because we recognize that death is a separation, not only of our spirit, from our body, but death is a separation of humanity from God. Because of sin. So let me ask another question. Not only what are you afraid of. But would it change the way you think. The way you live. If you knew that death couldn't touch you. Would it change the way you live. If you knew death couldn't touch you. If you knew that there was nothing to fear. Because Jesus defeated death. And all who are connected to Jesus can have life that never ends. When we ask the question of who is Jesus, Jesus says, I am the maker of life. I am the giver of life. And those who were there, when Jesus demonstrated his power over death and life, it changed everything about them. Changed the way they thought, changed the way they viewed themselves, it changed the way they acted, it changed everything, because no longer did they have to be afraid of the great enemy of humanity, which is death, and we'll see that as we look at John chapter 11 this morning, that Jesus says, in me you can have life that never ends, that never dies, life in which you never have to fear, life that is full and abundant because of what he's done. All right, so let's look at John 11 and see how Jesus substantiates his claim to be the only one who can defeat death and provide us with eternal life. Starting in John 11, beginning in verse 1. John 11, verse 1. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sisters sent word to him saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, this sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the son of God may be glorified by it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. This he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. The disciples then said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he was speaking of literal sleep. So Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Therefore Thomas, who is called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go so that we may die with him. So Jesus gets word that his good friend Lazarus is about to die. Uh, And and the author here, John, tells us over and over again throughout this passage, Jesus loved Lazarus. Lazarus he loved Mary and Martha this was a family he was close to he had eaten in their home he had spent time with them. Jesus loved these people and so he gets this word that Lazarus is sick and what's crazy about it is it says Lazarus is sick and it says Jesus loved him and he says this isn't going to end in death but then right after that John tells us so because he loved him when Jesus heard that Lazarus was sick guess what he did he stayed two more days where he was. Now, when, you, when I first read that, I thought, that is uh, unusual, right? If I heard that my friend is about to die, you get that call. He's in the hospital. He's sick. I'm going to hop in the car. I'm going to drive there right away. I remember getting that call about my grandfather. And what did I do? I went and I, I booked a plane ticket in the hopes that I could get there before he passed away. To see him. But Jesus, because he loves them, it says he stays two more days. What in the world is going on? Well, here's the issue. Jesus needs them to understand that he has power over the worst enemy of humanity. And he wants Mary and Martha and the disciples to see that he's unafraid of death. Because he's in charge of the universe. Uh, There are some children in here this morning. Kids, let me ask you a question. If you're in elementary school, have you ever had a time when you were struggling with your homework, maybe long division or algebra or some kind of math, and uh, you are struggling with it and your parents will not help you? Has that ever happened to you? And you are in physical pain because the work is so hard and you're twisting in your chair and the tears are coming and you say, Mom and Dad, I need you to do this for me. And they say, I will not. And you think, I have the meanest parents on the face of the planet. And you're angry. Why won't they help me? Here's why they don't help you. Because they know what? They've told you this, haven't they? They know that you need to learn how to do the work. And sometimes the only way to learn, the only way to grow, the only way to understand perseverance is to be in a bit of pain over that homework. And it's hard for them to watch. Now, some of your parents don't help you because they don't remember how to do it, right? Uh, they, they don't remember how to do long division. But most of them, they don't help because they want you to learn. Uh, even if they don't remember how to do it, that's what they say, right? Uh, I want you to learn how to do it. I need you to persevere. Well, Jesus is doing something very similar here with his friend Lazarus and Mary and Martha and the disciples, he says, here's the point. I want you guys to understand that not even death can conquer Jesus Christ. And so he stays where he is for two days. And then it says, he tells the disciples, hey, let's go back to Judea. And now it's the disciples' turn to be afraid of death. They look at Jesus and they say, "Uh, Jesus, let me remind you, uh, we were in Judea before and they tried to kill you there. And Jesus responds, as he often does, with a metaphor, right? And you can just see the disciples going, another metaphor, we're going to die, right? Jesus says, look, if you walk in the light, you don't have to be afraid. What's the point? As long as you're with me, you have nothing to fear. I am the light. You stay by my side. You've got nothing to fear. And then he says, look, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. I'm going to wake him up. And I love the disciples take him very literally after he just used an extended metaphor in the previous passage. They go, look, if he's asleep, he's he's probably going to be fine, right? He doesn't need an alarm clock. Let's not go die because Lazarus overslept, right? Jesus looks at him and goes, he's dead and I'm glad I wasn't there so that you may understand the glory of God, and believe in me. And then Thomas, in classic fashion, says, let's go too. We may as well die with him. Right? Thomas sounds a bit like Eeyore when you first read this. Right? <laughs> long as we're going to die, right? let's be with Jesus. Okay? But Thomas is on to something. If you're going to face death, face it with Jesus. Thomas understands There's no better place to be in the face of death than in the presence of Jesus. Several weeks ago, uh, we ate with some friends, and uh, the uh, husband uh, happened to be a physician. And as I sat down to eat, I realized that my meal was quite unhealthy, right? I had a sandwich that was greasy, and I had this big cookie and everything, and I thought, He's judging me while he's eating his salad, right, or whatever, because he's a doctor. But then I thought this. I thought, you know, if I'm going to have a heart attack, what better time than when I'm eating with a doctor, right? If it's going to happen, I might as well be with somebody who hopefully knows what to do. Similarly, Thomas says, if we're going to face death, let's face it with Jesus. It's remarkable. Jesus is absolutely unafraid. Absolutely unafraid in the face of the greatest enemy of mankind. Death has haunted us, death has overshadowed us since Adam and Eve. The sin of Adam and Eve led to death. It is a curse, a separation from God. And every aspect of our lives is now overshadowed by death. A little sin spoils God's creation. I don't know if you've ever taken a strawberry out of its carton. And as you look at that strawberry, you see a tiny bit of fuzzy white mold at the bottom of the strawberry. Now, you have two options when you face that. Uh, One is... uh, To go ahead and cut off that mold and eat the rest of the strawberry. I don't do that. If it has mold, it is permanently tainted. I throw it away. A little bit of mold, in my view, taints the entire fruit. That's what death has done to God's creation. A little sin. Creeping death has tainted all of God's creation, which is why Romans 8 says even the creation itself groans for redemption. And what's remarkable is in the face of that enemy, Jesus doesn't flinch. And he wants the disciples and Mary and Martha and even Lazarus and you and me to understand that he has victory over the greatest enemy of mankind and he will defeat it. And that's what we see as Jesus now goes to Bethany to face The greatest enemy of mankind. Look at uh, verse 17 and forward. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him. But Mary stayed at the house. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here My brother would not have died. Even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. When she had said this, she went away and called Mary, her sister, saying secretly, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she got up quickly and was coming to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and consoling her, when they saw that Mary got up quickly and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. So Jesus goes and he arrives in the midst of really a typical scene of mourning. It has been four days since Lazarus died. And this is significant that it's been four days. Uh, There was a rabbi, his name was Bar Kapara. He says this, The whole strength of the morning is not until the third day. For three days long the soul returns to the grave thinking that it will return into the body. When, however, it sees that the color of its face has changed, then it goes away and leaves it. In other words, the Jews had this tradition that for three days, the soul kind of hung around the body. And there was still a chance that you weren't really dead. But after three days, the soul would come back and you looked different. And he would go, nah, we're really dead. And the soul would leave. So it's significant now. It's been four days. There is no hope. They are mourning And there is no hope. And Martha, who tends to be the more verbal and active of the two sisters in every account that we have, she runs from the house to meet Jesus. And she says, Jesus, if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. Even now, she says, even now, Jesus, I know whatever you ask, God is going to give you. Whatever you ask of him, God is going to give you. I know you could have kept him alive. And Jesus says, your brother will rise again. And Martha responds with what is an orthodox statement of faith. She goes back to the idea of Daniel chapter 12. And she says, I know he will rise again. One day. And you can hear the implication. But right now, Jesus, he's dead. My brother is gone and you weren't here. I know he'll rise again one day in the resurrection on the last day. And this is where Jesus looked at her and he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in, in me will live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Don't you see what Jesus is saying? He's saying, You are standing in the presence of eternal life. Jesus is the one who made life. In the beginning, John told us, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. When God spoke into existence, all of creation, Jesus is in the presence of his people, and he is the resurrection and the life, and he says, anybody who believes in me will live, even if he dies, and as long as you believe in me, you can never die. Here's what he's saying, that as long as you're plugged into Jesus, you will never die, because the life of God now dwells in you and me, and so death itself is a temporary state, and it is a moment in which we transition into a new life in the presence of God forever, and we await the resurrection of the body. You cannot die when you're in the presence of Jesus. Martha Lazarus is not dead because he knows me. Many of you in this room, if not most of you in this room, have a phone, you have a smartphone, and this phone is your connection. To the world, right? To the universe. As long as it is on, you can contact your family. You can contact your friends. You can Instagram your food. If I get too boring, you can play Angry Birds this morning. There are all kinds of things that you can do as long as this phone is on. But what happens is the battery runs down, doesn't it? The battery eventually runs down. And what do we say when the battery hits zero? It has died, right? It has died. My phone is dead. And often you feel a sense of grief, don't you? You feel that sadness. It is dead. My connection to life, to the world, has died. Right? And you're sad. Right? There are no more pictures of your pasta. There is no more angry birds. There is nothing else to do except read a book or talk to your friends. It's dead and grief has arrived. Right? What's the solution? You plug it in to power, don't you? Now what's interesting is as long as it's plugged into that charger, it can't die, can it? It will stay alive and on and connected to the world. Jesus says, as long as you're plugged into me, you cannot die. Because what is death? Death is separation from God. That's what death is. Death is separation from God. If you think about the curse in the Garden of Eden, they were separated from the life that God offered and they were kicked out of his presence. That is death. And from the moment they were kicked out of the garden until the moment they laid in the tomb, they were dead. It was just a matter of time till their bodies caught up with their spirits. And death is separation from God. And Jesus says, if you're in my presence, you can't die. You are always alive if you believe in me. I am the resurrection and the life. In John chapter 4, Jesus had elaborated on this same theme. He says, Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. You see what Jesus is saying. If you believe in him, the eternal life of God already lives in you. If you believe that Jesus died and rose again to pay the penalty of your sin and to bring you eternal life, then the life of God lives in you and eternal life starts at the moment you believe and it extends forever. So you can't die. Death cannot claim you. Because You're connected to Jesus. This is why Paul will say in 1 Thessalonians 4 that as Christians, although we grieve, we do not grieve as those who have no hope. I've been at funerals where there's no hope present because the men and women in the room do not know Jesus and the deceased did not know Jesus. And so there is a separation from life. But Paul says, for those who know Jesus, we grieve, but not as those who have no hope, because we know that the deceased is living with God forever, and we know Jesus will return, and the graves will empty out. And so we grieve with hope. And Jesus tells Martha, trust me, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who made life will restore it. And so Jesus now will move forward to restore the life that he created. Look starting in verse 33. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled and said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews were saying, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man also from dying? So Jesus, again, being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, Remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around it, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. The man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus Had done. Now, Jesus looked at the chaos and the confusion and the anger and the grief around him, and he felt agitated and disturbed. And the text says that Jesus saw death. It tells us very simply, Jesus wept. This is one of the first verses you memorized when you had to say a verse, right, to get candy in Sunday school. Say, Jesus wept. And the teacher would say, why? And you go, I don't know. I only memorized that one verse. Jesus wept. Jesus wept because, because he hated death and what it had done to his world. And it's easy to read this passage and say, yeah, but doesn't Jesus know that he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead? Doesn't Jesus get it? Well, of course Jesus gets it. But it still is devastatingly sad to see his friends in pain. When my son was born, he was very sick. He spent... Some time in the NICU. And what's interesting is, after the first day, we knew he was going to be okay. We knew he would pull through and he would be fine. But we still cried when we saw him hooked up to those tubes, when we saw him in pain. And Jesus, seeing his people in pain, he cried and he wept. But the difference between his tears. And ours is that Jesus can fix it. And so he moves toward the tomb and he says, take away the stone. And Martha, in a display of decency and compassion, she says literally in the Greek, Jesus, by this time, literally, he will stink. He's been in there four days. Why subject our brother and us to this humiliation? And Jesus looks at her and he says, did I not tell you, if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Roll away the stone. And so they roll away the stone and Jesus calls out, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus walks out and they unbind him. And it says, many of them believed in Jesus. Others of them went and tattled on Jesus. Because they had to come to terms with who this man was. And Jesus validated with his actions what he said with his lips. He who believes in me need never fear death. Need never fear pain. Need never fear sickness. Need never fear sin. Because I am the resurrection and the life. So Lazarus comes out of the grave. This is only a few weeks, by the way, before Jesus himself would face death. And Jesus would go into the tomb for three days. And then on the third day, Jesus rose again. That's what we celebrate on Easter Sunday. Lazarus came out of the grave. And here's the deal with Lazarus. He died again. It's a super bummer. The second funeral must have been the worst. It happened again. He died again. On the other hand, I I thought this past week, how differently must Lazarus have lived after he had already died? I mean, how different would your perspective be? I cannot imagine that anything would really bother you if he did not care for Martha's cooking one night. At least you're not dead, right? If the traffic between Bethany and Jerusalem is too much and you're tempted to go, come on, get the camels out of the way. Hey, but I'm alive. You get a scrape, you get a cut, you get sick. Lazarus Lazarus thinks, I already died. What's the worst that could happen? I die again, right? And Jesus brings me back to life. Would it make a difference if you had already died and had risen again and knew that death could not permanently touch you? What would you be afraid of? What would there possibly be to fear? See, a few weeks after this, as we mentioned, Jesus himself rose from the dead. He died for our sin. Remember, sin is what led to death in the Garden of Eden. Because Adam and Eve sinned, that led to the death of every person who will ever live until Jesus returns. Roman 5 tells us that because one man sinned, he died and then death spread to all men because one man sinned. So all of us are under the shadow of death, but Jesus died in our place for our sin and he rose again offering life forever to those who believe in him so that Here's the good news. You and I, in Jesus Christ, have already died. You've already died. And you are alive again with God in Jesus Christ. Look at how Paul puts it in Romans chapter 6. Our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin For he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. How would you live if you had nothing to fear? What would your life look like if the worst enemy of humanity had no claim on you? if you didn't have to worry and stress and feel anxious about running out of money because of the economy, because again, what's the worst that can happen? You could die. Jesus rose again. If you did not have to fear old age and the graying of your hair and the degeneration of your body, or cry at the barber shop when you see the gray hair fall on the smock like I am tempted to do. You don't have to fear. Why? Because Jesus died and rose again. You have already died in Christ. Your sin is dead and life has come. What if you didn't have to fear separation from God, separation from others for eternity, that loneliness that we all fear that creeps into our soul because really what we fear is death. But Jesus is alive. And so Jesus stepped into the chaos of death and he said, I am the resurrection and the life. Roll away the stone and I will conquer death and give life to my people starting now and lasting into forever. There are no doubt some men and women in this room that you are afraid because you do not have life. In Jesus Christ. If you do not know God through Jesus Christ. The news this morning. In the proclamation of Jesus. That he is the resurrection. The news for you this morning. Is that all your sin. All your death. Has been defeated. At the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Jesus says. All who believe in me. Never need fear death again. And for those who believe in Jesus, the Spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead lives in us. And so we can walk in boldness and newness of life. We can rely upon Him to evidence and demonstrate the love of God in Jesus Christ toward our neighbors without fear to proclaim the message that Jesus died and rose again to give us life, to trust him in the day-to-day struggles that we face as God stretches our faith in him and says sometimes it's good that I don't rush in to deliver you from struggles because you need to believe. Would it transform your life if you had nothing to fear? if you knew that death couldn't touch you because it can't. And we have nothing to fear and everything to look forward to because of Jesus, the resurrection, and the life. So as we close, do you believe in Jesus? And does your life reflect the power of the resurrection? Have you trusted in Jesus for eternal life? to receive the life that he gives as a free gift. There's nothing you have to do to earn it because Jesus did all the work when he died and rose again. And does your life reflect the power of his resurrection? Do you live in the truth and the freedom that comes from knowing death and sickness and pain and sin will one day be permanently washed away? So what's the worst that could happen? You've already died. And you're alive again with God and Jesus Christ. Does our life reflect the power of his resurrection? Would you pray with me? Father, thank you that your son is the resurrection and the life. We have nothing to fear. There is no enemy Who can defeat him. And death has no hold. Over those who trust him. Father we praise you. That we have the opportunity. To celebrate his resurrection. We praise you that it is not just a story. But that the stone was rolled away. By the power of God and Jesus. Walked out of the tomb. Ascended into heaven. And now sits at your right hand. And he prepares a place for us. And for all who trust in him. I pray if there are any men and women in this room this morning. Who are not certain they have life through Jesus Christ. That you would give it to them this morning through faith. Father we pray. That our lives would be marked by the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ that we would live in the boldness and the freedom that comes from knowing no enemy can destroy us because we're in him. We thank you, Father, for this morning. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. We'll see you right next door for the brunch immediately following.